last Sunday. Let me give you a real quick recap of what we talked about last Sunday, and, and that will give us a running start into today. Last Sunday, again, we talked about uh, the question, His greater glory and our walk, what does that look like? And uh, how are we doing that, <clears throat> that walk? But God will use the church for His greater glory. Uh, and uh, we saw that uh, in Scripture through its exaltation, through its attraction, uh, through its dominion, and, and through its reconciliation. And the command, or the command that we experienced during that time was walk in the light. We need to be walking in the light right now, whatever it takes. And uh, Jesus spoke about that in John 8. And how we do that is to imitate God's character. We need to know the truth and we need to live the truth. And then also, too, we need to acknowledge that my sin is sin. Not to excuse it, not to, not to ignore it, not to justify it, but to confess it. <laughs> and when that happens, acknowledge the sin is sin. And then, uh, um, of course, uh, we... We need to walk, <clears throat> excuse me, we need to walk in all the light we have. So as we come today and, and we are ready to learn from Him, we're ready to receive the truth that He has for us here today, I trust that you have done that throughout the week. That as you read Scripture, that you went through your devotions and, and you discovered something new, it was something that you agreed upon and was obedient in. But the, the key thing in all this as well, too, is that we need one another, and we need to be together as a church. And as Hebrews chapter 10 tells us about that, how we need to continue to meet together and not give up doing that. And like I said, I'm so thankful for technology. It helps us do that. It's not in person, face-to-face, but we can still meet together in this way. And maybe, you know, you know, be thankful for it, because maybe one day it might be you on the other side of the camera going, I'm so glad I'm able to connect in, at least this way, because I can't be there right now. But it's good to be together, good to encourage one another, uh, again, as, as Hebrews tells us, more as we see the day approaching. Now, today's scripture we're going to look at is in Isaiah 5, and today's scripture reminded me of caring for a plant that I had in college. I was given an African violet, and it was a small little thing, wasn't huge or gigantic, and those of you who have green thumbs or master gardeners or whatever, you're going, well, it doesn't take much to take care of that, but it did, it was a lot for me. College student trying to figure things out, trying to not be distracted, and athlete and everything else, oh, of course, I was dating Becky too, so we had a lot of stuff in my mind going on and everything else, and, and so I took care of the, that, that plant, water it then it's good to go, right? Well, apparently, it's a kind of fussy plant. You're supposed to water it, but don't overwater it. It's supposed to have some bright light, but not directly. It's indirect light. So all these things, I had no idea that it needed until I saw the leaves kind of go, what are you doing? You're supposed to grow. I'm watering you. I thought I did all I was supposed to do for this plant. Now, that's in opposition to what we're going to see here in the Scripture, where this master gardener does everything for this vineyard, takes care of it in a supreme way, and the results aren't that great. But Have you ever tried to confront someone on an issue they are blind to? When you know there's going to be conflict when you talk to this person, you're preparing yourself thinking, oh man... 
I really don't want to do this, but God, you're prompting me to do this. I got to do this. And you want that person to hear you, receive it. Now, it's up to them what they're going to do with it, but at least receive it. And there are a lot of different ways to do that. And maybe you've tried different ways and some didn't work. Maybe some did for you. But it takes a real, a real skill to get the truth in before a person's defenses go up. And to do that, again, not just skill on your part, but again, the, the Holy Spirit helping you with the words to say and how much to say, when to say it, how to say it. Because you know this person needs to hear some truth and they're not grasping it. I doubt we could ever confront someone on an issue as well as Isaiah. In our text, he rebukes Judah in a really skillful way. He's got a word of judgment and warning, but he knows how people quickly put up barriers. He needs a way around their defenses, and so he sings them a little song. No, maybe you want to try that sometime. <laughs> Use that as your approach. Start singing at them. I don't know, maybe that won't work for some of you, but... But in the end, if they were honest, they'd agree they completely deserved condemnation and they needed a change. Isaiah does it with a song. It's based on something that was a normal part of life, a vineyard. Vineyards were a common sight in the land of Judah since grapes grew best in that climate. And he tells about a farmer who had invested a lot in the well-being of, the, of his vineyard. And everyone knew that a vine is either good for fruit or is good for nothing. So his audience was like, mm, I, I, I get this. And there has to be a good harvest or the vine might as well just be cut down, burned, thrown away. Then comes the punchline in verse 7. Judah needs to know that this song is about them. In verse 7, the vineyard of the Lord, in Isaiah chapter 5, the vineyard of the Lord Almighty is the house of Israel, and the men of Judah are the garden of His delight. So suddenly, it hits close to home, and, and, and the whole song is, is really rather uncomfortable and awkward. Now, it's a song that uh, we also need to listen to as well. We have the privilege of being God's vineyard in His special care and His joy and delight. So how then do we live? What kind of harvest do we produce? So let's first look at this sad song in uh, Isaiah chapter 5, verses 1 through 7. I'm, I'm going to let you look at it while I go ahead and comment on these things uh, and these verses. But uh, in verses 1 through 7, that's the section we'll look at there. Isaiah sings a sad song about God's vineyard. And here we see God's diligent care as well, too. But also, it's a good beginning, good beginning. In the first two verses, before a singer or musician performs their piece, they'll often say a few words about their song, and that's here what Isaiah is doing. They introduce the song so that the audience has a bit of context and knows why they wrote it and what's it all about. And, and, and so here, Isaiah does that too in verse 1. I will sing for the one I, I love, a, a song about his vineyard. So I'm going to sing about the well-beloved, uh, the one I, I love. And he's going to sing a song for the, the one he loves. Who can that be? Well, of course, God. Isaiah loved God. And when you love God with all your heart, you start to take God's perspective on things. For example, we would share in his, his enjoyment over holiness and, and, and right decisions and following God's, God's word. 
and we share His outrage over things that are wicked. So when things come across the news or you experience stuff like that and it's not right, it's, it's against God, and you should feel a little outrage. What's important to God becomes important to us. And Isaiah shares in God's grief and outrage over what's been happening in Judah. So this vineyard belonged to a loving person and planted on a very fruitful hill. This is how the song begins. My loved one had a vineyard on a fertile hillside, <laughs> verse 1. So Isaiah sketches a scene that was really familiar to his audience in Judah. Beautiful vineyards, gently rolling hills, a fertile place with vines in the sunlight, maybe a gentle breeze. The location for God's vineyard was everything that could be desired. But a good location isn't enough. Grapes are a crop that takes a lot of care, and it's probably one of the most labor-intensive crops that there, there is. So Isaiah describes everything that God has done for Judah, his nation. Then the ground was carefully prepared. Uh, in verse 2, talking about the fertile hillside, Isaiah says he dug it up and cleared it of stones. So before you can plant vines... You had to make sure that the land was good and ready. And that meant pulling up any other plants that would be fighting for water and sunlight. It also meant clearing the ground of stones. Just ask Stephanie. I'm sure she had plenty of moments where she had to get all those junk out of the area first and then plant what needed to be there. But the Judean countryside was fertile, but there, was, there were always a lot of rocks on the surface. You needed to move the rocks and then break it up break up the soil so that your plants could have space to put down roots and then grow. And then he planted the best vine, as we see here also in verse 2. So preparing a field for planting could take several months. And then finally you were ready to, as verse says, plant it with the choicest vine. Like with every crop, some grapes were of better quality than others. So if you wanted many years of good harvest, you'd plant one of the varieties that was known for size and quality. These would have to be purchased as small seedlings laid out in the, in the field, planted, and then carefully attended to. And then, of course, it was protected. So your, your work still wasn't done. The farmer next built a watchtower in that vineyard. All those cleared rocks probably could be used to build that tower. But it would be a place where your vineyard workers could rest in the heat of the day and from where you could also keep an eye out for intruders. Besides the tower, verse 5 says that, if you read ahead, verse 5 says that the farmer builds a stone wall around that, a hedge. So it was a double-fenced area. This was to keep out any robbers, whether, whether they're four-footed robbers or two-footed robbers who are looking for delicious grapes. A stone tower, a fence, a hedge, these are permanent structures. And the farmer is so confident that his vineyard will produce, that he's setting it up, up to last and, and be there forever. All these protections around it. And then there's a provision for fruit to be processed. Also in verse 2, he constructs a wine press. This was a difficult job to do as well. After you've done all this other work, you still you weren't, you weren't done yet. You had to do this as well too if you wanted to care for this 
place adequately. But he, he had to dig down deep and then cutting out a big hole into, into the stone. And in the wine press, the grapes would be trampled on, and the ju- juice would collect it in, in vats. This is just another picture of how prepared the farmer is to receive the fruits of his work. He was ready. Why would you go to all the effort of planting a vineyard without providing a way of gathering the grapes? <laughs> Crushing them and starting to make a good batch of wine. That's what it was all about. The fruit, the harvest. And then there's the expectation of good grapes. Farmer has been busy on his land for three years now. Four or five pouring, years pouring his heart into it. So what Isaiah says here near the end of verse 2 is no surprise. Then he looked for a crop of good grapes. Now, farmers are usually very patient people. They're used to working and then waiting. I've met plenty of those while I was youth pastor at Labish Center because out there's a lot of farmland and a lot of onion farmers, and they were pretty patient people. And even though they were patient and waited for the harvest, sometimes the harvest wouldn't come in like they thought. (laughs) But they do expect some kind of fruit from their labor, and so does this farmer. Now, we'll get to the fruit in a moment, but just remember where Isaiah is going with this vineyard song. Remember in verse 7, I already mentioned The vineyard of the Lord Almighty is the house of Israel, and the men of Judah are the garden of His delight. So yes, this little song is a parable about how the Lord had always nurtured His people. From the beginning, God had had treated Israel with amazing grace. He chose them out, out of all the nations, cared for them as His own. God had done everything for them and poured Himself out for them, just like that, that hard-working farmer we, we read about here. God rescued them from their enemies, carried them through the wilderness, gave them a new home in the promised land. The Lord gave them all that they needed, giving His law, sending His prophets, leading them with kings, causing their work to thrive, and above all, forgiving their sins through the blood of Jesus. There's no fault in what God had done for them. No fault at all. The soil, the the vines, the vineyard, the tower and the walls of protection, everything was in place for a good harvest. God truly loved His vineyard. I hope that you can hear how our text is kind of speaking to us today. There is one people of God, one covenant family across the ages, and we're not Israelites like those Isaiah sang to, but we are in the beautifully diverse crowd, as we talked about last Sunday, of nations now streaming to Zion. We were part of that group. We were once strangers to God's covenant, but now included by His grace, joined to the vine of Christ and lovingly tended by the master gardener himself. This means that what Isaiah says is for us too. Just think of how much God has provided for His people, how much effort God has poured into us. God chose us. God saved us from captivity to sin through the saving work of Christ, His only Son. God has given us a new home. God has provided a a family for us right here where He speaks to us in His Word and He fills us with His Spirit. God has blessed us in so many other ways which are all a gift of His grace and evidence of His loving care for us as well. 
God should expect a rich harvest from our lives. We are His vineyard. And Isaiah's song was very relatable. The farmer had done everything, spared no expense for his vineyard, withheld no effort. So Judah would have quickly agreed that his expectation was fair to look for a crop of good grapes. That's reasonable. And then in verses 3 and 4, we have some probing questions. <laughs> As you look at those verses, basically the question, who's, the, who's at fault for the results? Is it the owner of the vineyard? Is it the vineyard? What more could have been done for the vineyard? Why were there wild grapes instead of good grapes? And you look at the situation, you stand back, and you observe everything, you're going, something's wrong here. He did all he could to provide an opportunity for the, this vineyard to grow and produce grapes. It is not producing good grapes. So they also would have shared the farmer's outrage. He comes looking for a decent harvest, but his vineyard, in verse 2, yielded only bad fruit. Now, it's as if he wandered into a random field, happened to find a small vine, growing wild, producing just a handful of tiny, pulpy, sour-tasting fruit. <laughs> Ones even the birds didn't want. And in the Hebrew, it says literally that his vineyard brought forth stink fruit or smelly things. What a disappointment with all the effort that had gone into the vineyard. So let the owner give it up. Let him give up on it. Let, let him break down the walls and let the animals trample it. If it never rained again on this land, it would be no big loss. It wasn't producing much anyway. So here's where we enter into the sad song part of this whole thing. Verse 5 and 6. So the hedges, hedges are burned, the wall's broken down, that means there's no more, no more protection. They're going to feel the consequences of their actions. And he ceases pruning, cultivating it. Now, if you have a garden at home or even in your flower beds, and you cease cultivating that, or even apple trees or fruit trees, and you cease pruning it, it's not going to be a good outcome. And no more watering. He's not going to allow the, the clouds to bring rain to that area. So you see how Isaiah has been a little sneaky with the people of Judah. Gives this wonderful song and says how God has provided and everything else. And you guys are... But now look what's going on. You have not produced what God wants. And this is what's going to happen. They are His vineyard. So how can they keep living like they've never been touched by God's grace? God had shown great kindness and goodness, and He wanted His people to be moved by His glory. That's what God also always wants from us. He wants those things as well, too, happening in us. We moved by His glory. A grateful response to His majesty when we delight in worshiping Him, giving our thanks, giving our service, giving our love. But God is left with wild grapes. And uh, what does God mean by wild grapes? Well, as Isaiah explains in verse 7, he, he, and he looked for justice but saw bloodshed, for righteousness but heard cries of distress. Now, we don't see it in the English here, but in the original Hebrew, justice and bloodshed sound alike in Hebrew. 
And righteousness and cries of distress also sound alike in the Hebrew. One commentator translates it like this. He said, God looked for right, but found riot. He looked for decency, but found despair. So the, the, the slight difference was dramatic. On Judah's branches, there was no pleasing fruit of the Spirit, but only a, a putrid harvest of sin. Stink berries, if you will. And I heard one pastor talk about that. Stink berries. Isaiah lists these stink berries in the following woes that we read here in verses 8 through 23. Six stink berries to avoid. The first one found in verses 8 through 10, greed and oppression. And he brings them, he presents them in uh, the package of woes, <laughs> if you, as you see there. Woe to you who add house to house and join field to field till no space is left and you live alone in the land. Verse 9, the Lord Almighty has declared to my hearing, surely the great houses will become desolate, the fine mansions left without occupants. In verse 10, a 10-acre vineyard will produce only a bath of wine, a home or a seed, only an ephah of grain. So there are a couple of sins going on here. One is the simple sin of coveting or, or greed. Men want more. More houses, bigger houses, more land. They cannot be satisfied with what they have. They just want more. They want as much as they possibly can get until nothing is left and they are left alone. <laughs> and the other sin that is implied here is oppressing one's neighbor. Because in order to get this land and do that, you're going to have to probably take it from someone else. If it's not available, they'll make it available. Land was a livelihood, though, uh, as well as living space back then. This is an agricultural society, and cheating someone of his land made him poor. The only way to survive is to work for the new owner, which in effect made him a slave. So all this is going on. A big stinkberry. <laughs> In verses 11 through 17, we see another stinkberry, drunkenness. Drunkenness. Woe to those who rise early in the morning to run after their drinks, in verse 11 there, who stay up late at night till they are inflamed with wine. Here are people who burn both ends of the candle to keep up their schedule of drunken stints. <laughs> they want to keep drinking, but uh, they got to make sure they're also doing these other things too, as you read through those verses 11 through 17. They wake early with a craving for a drink and stay up late, filling their insatiable thirst. This is not a description of the, of the hardened alcoholic. It is a description of the unrestrained man pursuing sensual pleasure. Whatever he wants to do, he will do it at any cost. Pleasure of the flesh is all that drives him. And an interesting question might come up, and I've heard it come up before, and I've read articles about it as well. Then this kind of, I believe, speaks to it a bit. Can Christians drink alcohol? Can Christians drink that kind of stuff? And you know, in Scripture, I don't really see anything in there that says, no, you cannot drink alcohol. What it does say, say don't get drunk. <laughs> don't get drunk on wine. Don't get drunk in drinking. 
But then there's the good question, well, why would you go that direction if in case you might get drunk? Do you know when to quit? Do you know when to stop? And for some, that's just a trigger in, in that you might not be able to stop. You have that just kind of personality or that you, you just go at it with all your might. <laughs> and so you know to stay away from that stuff and you abstain, and that's fine. Now, that's fine if you have a, a glass of wine for, for dinner or whatever, but it says don't get drunk. Don't get drunk. The other thing to keep in mind, too, is that what we allow as parents and adults, what we allow in moderation, what we do that in moderation, our kids will practice in excess. Keep that in mind, too, as you consider those things. So the stink barrier number two, drunkenness. And then you have stink barrier number three, bondage to sin, verses 18 through 19. Woe to those who draw sin along with cords of deceit and wickedness as, as with uh, cart ropes. To those who say, let God hurry, let Him hasten His work so we may see it, let it approach, let the plan of the Holy One of Israel come so we may know it. Sin and wickedness is connected so tightly to these people. They can't get away from it. It makes them hardened to the fact that God is almighty. It's almost as if they, they taunt God to bring on the judgment. I'm here. Let's see what you got, God. It's not going to be that bad. They don't realize that their attitudes come up against a God who can snuff them out in the blink of an eye. There's no, there's no fear of God at all. It's been lost. And then, stinkberry number four, which we probably have seen a lot these days, redefining evil. Redefining evil. Those who call evil good. Verse 20, Woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who put darkness for light and light for darkness, who put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. You can see what's going on. Everything that was supposed to be is not now, and everything that was not supposed to be is now, and so everything's flipped on its head. It's one thing to act badly and admit that it's bad. It's another thing to act badly and proclaim it is good. <laughs> and here's the progression of how this occurs when, when a society commits sin over and over. Either the behavior will break down or it will become integrated into what is accepted. And I think the former has, has been happening, or the latter has been happening. We've been doing this a lot so many times. It's been accepted. Just think... 40, 50, 60 years ago, what, what society was like and how it has continued to digress more and more because these things have been folded into our culture and accepted more and more. You probably are aware of Gavin Newsom, the governor of California. This provides a great illustration about this. It came to my attention, and then uh, Al Sassanati showed me a, a letter that he wrote. But uh, he sent an open letter to Governor uh, John MacArthur, sent an open letter to Gavin Newsom, because his billboards and advertisements were placed across the country by his campaign, who were shamelessly misquoting Mark chapter 12, verse 31. I don't know if you've seen these at all, or you saw a report about this. Love your neighbor as yourself, all in support of abortion. So when I saw that, I was like, um, I don't know if that works like that. I don't think it's supposed to. And John MacArthur, uh, pastor of Grace Community Church, sent an open letter of rebuke and, and also a plea to the governor. 
And in one section of the letter, he writes this. He says, you, cho you chose words from the lips of Jesus without admitting that in the same moment he gave the greatest commandment, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength. You cannot love God as he commands while aiding in the murder of his image bearers. Yeah. And all so much we see how people are looking at evil and saying, that's not bad, that's good. Almost kind of like you're reading that book about uh, no good, terrible, awful, rotten day, and, and things are bad and good, and it's not like you think, it's, it's backwards. How are we able to turn what was once regarded as evil into being regarded as good? We've made man as wise as God. We think we know it all. Which then takes us to the fifth stinkberry. Stinkberry number five, intellectual pride. Verse 21. Woe to those who are wise in their own eyes and clever in their own sight. Following principle from a certain religious organization is, is a pretty good illustration of man's foolishness that he regards himself as wise. Listen to the what it says uh, as far as one of their principles. We believe, and again, a religious organization, we believe that personal experience, conscience, and reason should be the final authorities in religion. In the end, religious authority lies not in a book, person, or institution, but in ourselves. We put religious insights to the test of our hearts and minds. We uphold the free search for truth. We will not be bound by a statement of belief. We do not ask anyone to subscribe to a creed. We say ours is a non-creedal religion. Ours is a free faith. Wow. Okay. Um, that. You might not know uh, that specific principle from uh, a certain church, a religious organization, but you see those churches all around. And you, you, you read, you hear this, and you go, that doesn't, that's not right. <laughs> that's not right. A man's foolishness of thinking that himself is wise and all-knowing. And, and another way of saying all this is ours is a religion that doesn't need God's input. Thank you very much. We're good on our own. Stinkberry number six, perversion of justice, verses 22 and 23. Woe to those who are heroes of, at drinking wine and champions at mixing drinks, who acquit the guilty for a bribe but deny justice to the innocent. Leaders who are drunk and pervert justice at every size, what we see here. Rather than being heroes and good government authorities, many leaders were known for their heavy drinking. They were ready to be bribed, not caring for the people they were ruling. They were, they were more concerned for their own pleasure than for the rights of the innocent, so those leaders would be judged. And you probably can see that these days as well, too. And it might, might not be alcohol that they are drunk on. It might be power. It might be other things, too. But uh, something to be aware of coming up in November when you cast your vote. Verses 24 through 30, we have a, a severe judgment that is handed out. I'm not going to read it all there, but you see the therefores. Because you have done this, I will do this. And God speaks to them in that way through Isaiah. 
Israel didn't delight in the one who delighted in them. So judgment was, judgment was gone on its way. And judgment was in the form of the Assyrian army. He was going to use an outside force to discipline and show them their wrong ways. So how do we avoid these stink berries and, and this kind of judgment and, and, and keep the song from becoming sad? Because if I were to read that verse, those verses starting off in Isaiah 5, I wouldn't want to go past verse 2. <laughs> I wouldn't want to go beyond the point where it starts becoming sad. How do we re, uh, reroute the song to, to, to keep it happy, to keep it nice, to be, keep it good? Oh, you've heard of FOMO before? Maybe you haven't. Fear of missing out. I, I want you guys to uh, not miss out on some things. First of all, don't miss out on the true fruit. Don't miss out on the true fruit. God is still looking for fruit in His vineyard. He's looking for the right kind of fruit. And there's no substitutes allowed. Listen to what Jesus tells His disciples in, in John 15. I am the true vine, and my Father is the gardener. He cuts off every branch in me that bears no fruit, while every branch that does bear fruit He prunes so that it will be even more fruitful. This is simply the way you, you tend a vineyard. You prune back the things that aren't producing fruit so the fruitful branches can bear more fruit. Notice that when we pruned our apple tree. <laughs> Although we didn't get fruit for one year, we got a lot of fruit now coming. But when you prune back correctly <laughs> fruit trees, they will produce a wonderful harvest. Of course, if they're healthy trees as well, too. But pruning is very important. In John 15, verse 3, you are already clean because of the word I have spoken to you. Clean means pruned. <laughs> the disciples were already pruned back because of Jesus' words to them. We too are pruned as we spend time in God's word. And we continually, he continually shows us what, what, what does and doesn't belong in our life. And as that happens, we need to be in agreement with him and live in obedience. And then verses 4 and 5 of John 15, Remain in me, and I will remain in you. No branch can bear fruit by itself. It must remain in the vine. Neither can you bear fruit unless you remain in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. If a man remains in me, and I in him, he will bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. The key to producing fruit in your life is simply to stay connected to Jesus. It needs to happen. If you're not, if there are times where you feel apart from God, check to see if you've been connected with Jesus. How are your devotions going? How's your Bible reading going? How's your prayer life? How's your attendance coming to church and hear about other people's lives and connecting with other people and believers and being guided by God through His Word and His messages and, 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 and Sunday school and Bible discussion times. Connecting, staying connected to Jesus. And that's the idea of what it means to remain. Just stay put. Stay in Jesus. Don't go anywhere. In John 15, verse 6, If anyone does not remain in me, he's like a branch that is thrown away and withers. Such branches are picked up, thrown into the fire, and burned. Israel received a, a similar warning from Isaiah that those walls would be broken down and the vineyard would be spoiled. God is serious about us producing fruit and the right kind of fruit. Not those stink berries. It's not that we need to be fearful and trembling, but we need to take it seriously. God wants you to produce good fruit. 
And then John 15, verse 7, If you remain in me and my words remain in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be given you. This is to my Father's glory that you bear much fruit, showing yourselves to be my disciples. And again, look at the place of God's Word. Get into God's Word. It's key to producing good fruit. And in verses 9 through 13, As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Now remain in my love. If you obey my commands, you will remain in my love, just as I have obeyed my Father's commands and remain in His love. I've told you this so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be complete. My command is this, love each other as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that he lay down his life for his friends. I believe the main fruit the Lord is looking for in our lives is his love. As you stay close to Jesus and stay in his word, you will see more and more of his love for you, and you will find yourself loving others. But be careful that it's not just the, the close to the real thing kind of love. or It's got to be God's kind of love. It's got to be lay down your life kind of love. <laughs> not just the fake plastic kind. Don't miss out on the true fruit. Also, I would not want you to miss out on the ecstasy of worship. Now, that's kind of a weird term. There are Bible scholars who have an interesting take on some of the prophets in the Bible. They refer to the time when a prophet might be speaking for the Lord as a time of ecstasy. Now, there are references that certainly can give this impression. When the Spirit of the Lord came upon King Saul, he had a very unusual reaction to the Spirit of God on him. In 1 Samuel chapter 19, we read that Saul went to Naoth at Ramah, but the Spirit of God came, came even upon him, and he walked along prophesying until he came to Naoth. He stripped off his robes and also prophesied in Samuel's presence. He lay that way all that day and night. This is why people say, is Saul also among the prophets? But there's no evidence that this was the normal reaction of a prophet to God's Spirit, but it certainly was for Saul. I can see how some scholars refer to the ecstasy of God's Spirit. I think there are moments when we experience a kind of ecstasy during our worship time. There's a great joy that comes as we worship God. We show it in our posture as we sing, close our eyes, or we just sense God's presence in an incredible way. I think part of that joy comes directly from God's presence. As the psalm says, psalmist says in, in Psalm 16, You have made known to me the path of life. You will fill me with joy in your presence, with eternal pleasures at your right hand. But I, I think there's a measure of joy that comes from the, the music itself as well, too. Music has the potential of being quite an emotional, spiritual stimulus. The prophet Elisha understood this. There was a time when he was being asked by a king to prophesy, and the first thing he did was call for a musician to play for him, to get him in the mood. You also think of David playing his harp for Saul, the music being a calming influence on Saul's demonic oppression. Music can carry quite an emotional high with it. Musical worship is a very important part of our time together as we come for church, but there's more to worship than emotional music. The very idea of worship in both Hebrew and Greek is that of bowing before another. There are other ideas as well, but this is the majority of what worship is all about. It's the idea of humility before one greater than you. It's the idea of putting yourself into submission to the greater one's wishes. 
is the idea of total surrender of yourself to God, allowing Him to speak, and then following His commands. So if we think that we've worshipped only because we've reached some kind of emotional high through the musical worship time, we would be wrong. We've worshipped when we've bowed our hearts to the Father, submitting to Him. So don't miss out on the ecstasy of worship. Don't miss out also, too, on the knowledge of God. This is why our worship service is more than just music. It's also a time when we get into God's Word to grow in our knowledge and understanding of Him. Later on in the chapter, Isaiah reiterates this in verse 24, Isaiah 5, verse 24. Therefore, as tongues of fire lick up straw, and as dry grass sinks down in the flames, so their roots will decay and their flowers blow away like dust, for they have rejected the law of the Lord Almighty and spurned the word of the Holy One of Israel. So when you start getting really busy in your life, and you realize that you need to get some priorities uh, in, in life, you have to cut off all the excess and just go with what is impo- most important. Too busy, some things have to go by the wayside. This is what the apostles had to do when the early church began to grow. In Acts, we hear about it. We will turn this responsibility over to them, and we will give our attention to prayer and the ministry of the Word. It had to be divided up. There was too much to do. It's not just opening the Bible and taking a verse here and a verse there. It's, it's learning to know all the Word and not just take a verse with you for the day. Well, where did that verse come from? <laughs> What's around it? What's the context? When the text is taken out of the context, it becomes pretext. It's not the whole truth understood in context. It's, it's what we want it to say and how we want to say it. <laughs> we can guard against this when we develop our knowledge of Him through His Word. Don't miss out on the knowledge of God. And then also, don't miss out on the perfect timing of God. In verse 19 of Isaiah 5, to those who say, Let God hurry, let Him hasten His work so we may see it. Let it approach, let the plan of the Holy One of Israel come so we may know it. I know that sometimes we just want God to get us out of our mess. And sometimes God does deliver people instantly. That's why there are miracles. But He doesn't always do things that way. There are those who are holding out for the instant deliverance when God wants to take them through a gradual process. He's all about developing our character, developing our relationship with Him. And sometimes that takes mess. Sometimes that takes a messy journey. That They never reach the deliverance because they're on the wrong railroad track, or waiting for an instant engine to show up. Yet a long time ago, they could have gotten out on the sure city track and have been delivered. Sometimes the long road is the best road. The narrow road that's least traveled is the best road. <clears throat> if God wants to take a couple of weeks to get you away from your sin, is that okay with you? <laughs> you all right with that? Does it have to be now or, or never? God's timing. It's perfect. Don't miss out on the perfect timing of God. Now, I'm I'm sure Isaiah 5 can sound pretty scary. As you read through it and you see all that, and you're going, whoa, where's the good news? What's going on here? But it can be pretty scary depending on where you're sitting. It all really depends on what kind of fruit your vineyard is producing. Is it God's kind of fruit? 
or just imitation wax fruit, <laughs> stink berries. God is serious about finding the right fruit in you. If your life is nothing but a bunch of stink berries, then you've got something to worry about for good reason. But the good news is that Jesus, His sacrifice on the cross and His empty tomb point us to the forgiveness of our sins. He has provided a way to be reconciled to God. And through that reconciliation, He can clean up any stink berry in our life. As we follow Him closely and submit our lives to God, we can experience the fruit of our vineyard producing good grapes. So how is the vineyard in your life? What kind of fruit is being produced? And you can take a stroll over to Book of Galatians and find out what that fruit is. And we've had a message, series of messages on that already. What kind of fruit is being produced in your life? Has the master gardener done all he could in your life? Has he given all you need? What's your response? How should we be responding? If there are some stink berries in your life, maybe that's an indication that something has gone awry with you, not the master gardener. He's provided all you need. If there are some stink berries in our life, we might need to turn to God and say, could you prune this? Could you cultivate that area there? As painful as it might be. And let God work in your life. He wants the best for you. He wants to use you for His glory. And to do that, we need to be producing some good grapes in our life. I trust that Isaiah 5 not only is a wake-up call and but also, too, can be an encouragement to you. Trust the Master Gardener. He's done all He needs to do in your life to allow you to have this good harvest. It's up to you now and your choice and decisions you make. You're going to trust Him. You're going to submit to Him. You're going to follow Him only. That's up to you. And I trust that as we sing these next couple songs, the worship team is going to come on up, Annie and Don, and lead us in these songs. Maybe this first song would be your prayer, falling down at the feet of Jesus and letting Him take care of you, worshiping Him for what He's about to do in your life.